This episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast is proudly supported by AQA. AQA want you to know about all the things they've put in place to ensure your students' summer 23 GCSE maths exams were the best exams they could be to allow your students to shine. So what did they do? Well, I've picked out four things here that interested me. Number one, multiple choice questions were removed from the beginning of the papers and replaced with some lovely opening settling questions so that even your weaker students could have a go, succeed and carry that momentum through the rest of the paper. So important, that start of an exam. Number two, the wording, context and ramping of demand in the questions were all carefully considered. Number three, past questions were looked at scientifically in terms of performance to inform the question choice for summer 23. And finally, AQA have got together with some of the very best assessment expertise for mathematics in the whole wide world who work non-stop to try and get the best possible assessments for you. But that's all well and good, but did it actually work? Well, of course, the results from summer 23 are in, so... We can reveal that 60% of foundation tier students achieved half marks or more across the exam compared to just 33% in 2019 before the pandemic. And in the higher tier, over 65% scored over half marks compared to 46% in 2019. So it's looking good. Head over to aqa.org.uk forward slash discover maths to book a call with one of AQA's team of experts and find out why you should consider switching to AQA for GCSE maths. That's aqa.org.uk forward slash discover maths and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Another episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton, a show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. This is the eighth in the series of monthly conversations with my good friend and podcasting enemy, the fantastic Ollie Lovell. Each time we reflect upon things we've tried, seen, or been thinking about in the last month. And today we are joined by a very special guest, the fantastic Zach Groschel. Zach is a teacher from the US, currently working as a full-time instructional coach in what sounds like a very challenging school. Zach is also a keen blogger and a keen podcaster, and his insights today were absolutely fantastic. In fact, he kind of blew me and Ollie out of the water, which is a little bit annoying, but anyway. So what did we discuss in this episode? Well, we had an idea about establishing entry routines. Then it was all about relentless precision. Then I shared some ideas about obstacles to understanding. And then my favorite part of the conversation was when Zach shared six features in the journey from expert to novice. Absolutely fantastic, that bit. Then we had some stuff on self-explanations. And then finally, I posed the question, how much should you block before you interleave? It's a really good episode, this one. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, just a reminder to sign up for my two newsletters. That's the Tips for Teachers newsletter and the ED newsletter for more educational goodness in your inboxes each week. Links to those, as well as links to everything we discuss, are in the show notes. Enjoy.
Ollie Lovell. <laughs> I mean, I'm laughing already. How are you? Hi, I'm, I'm, I'm here, Craig. I'm here. Um, how are you doing? I've, a bit better than you. So, again, just for a bit of context here, what time is it in your world, dear Ol? It's 7 a.m. It's, it's, it's civilised. Civilised. And you've got a cap on, which is this kind of new look you're going for today. And you, you're claiming you're just kind of 10 minutes out of bed, straight onto yeah. a pod. That's the way you roll, isn't it? Yeah. I am I am in my pyjamas on the bottom half. <laughs> we'll put this out on YouTube. This will this will be a good one. But anyway, anyway, enough about enough about us. Oh, and I'm in a random hotel. I'm in, I'm in a Premier Inn on in Burton upon Trent as well. So we're flying here. But enough about us because this is a very special episode because we are we're, we're covering three continents. That's the way we're rolling these days because we've got a very special guest with us, Mr. Right from the US, Mr. Zach Groschel. Hello Zach, how are you? I'm great. Yeah. Um, uh, 7 a.m. is not that early, actually. I did a thing. I did a Think Forward Educators uh, Australian gig at 2 a.m. and I had to drink two Red Bulls. So that was that was way more hardcore than what you're dealing with. I feel like well, I'm a parent. Thing, Zach, That's the- <laughs> what you've got to realize, Zach, about Ollie is he's, the thing is when he's had his first child here, he's he's made the error of saying he's got it all nailed. So the first couple of months, he's absolutely flying. And then I knew it was coming. Very slowly, he's been going off the rails. And this is probably the pinnacle of it here. So he's claiming seven. I mean, he's losing sympathy left, right, and center, claiming 7 a.m. early. But what can you do? What can you do? I actually said anyway. civilized. But anyway, I'm, I'm happy to take the beating. That's fine. Fine, gentlemen. I, I like how you've obviously primed Zach behind the scenes, Craig, to, to have a good dig at me as well. Uh, this is this is really good. I should have definitely set up Jack for the, Zach for this interview rather than you doing it. <laughs> It's Zach, not Jack. You've got that as well. I've got the name sorted. Yeah. Right? Mate, I am. I am. So what, what actually happened was I decided at last minute it was a good idea to go to the Gold Coast to visit a school uh, on Tuesday, despite the fact that my week was quite full. And then on the way back, my flight got delayed for like four hours. So I ended up getting it at about 2 a.m. and then had, had to give a keynote the following morning, uh, plus a whole heap of deadlines yesterday. So yeah, I am a bit on the cook side of things. But uh, I'm happy to be here and uh, I, I love our monthly chats, Craig. Uh, so let's go. Let's go for it. Let's go for it. Right. So, Zach, um, as our special guest, do you want to start by just saying a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, I am an instructional coach, uh, which is a full-time gig in many schools in the United States. So I'm in one building uh, hired by a district uh, to work with teachers. And as a former teacher, that's typically how you get this job. I was promoted into this job and I uh, help teachers to improve their teaching. Um, on the side, though, a lot of people know me for my own podcast, Progressively Incorrect, and um, some of my consulting and work around cognitive science. So yeah, super glad to be here. Fantastic. And your teaching background, your specialist subject is maths, is it, Zach? Is that right? No, actually, I'm an Ooh. elementary teacher. Uh, I do love talking about math. Uh, I, I I think it's because I hated math as a kid. I like talking about math a lot. Um, but no, elementary teacher, fourth and fifth grade, uh, mostly. Amazing. Fantastic. Okay. And just final question on, on background, just a bit of context about the school that you're coaching at. What, what age range are we talking there, Zach? Yeah, we're talking about um, ages uh, 11 to 14. Uh, it's the middle years. It's called a middle school. Um, and the context is important because uh, a lot of uh, a lot of people know middle schools are typically pretty challenging in a lot of a lot of parts of the world, but this school is 
very uh, has a reputation and a reality of being very challenging. So we're we're a turnaround school, is what I would call us. Yeah. Fantastic. Right. Well, let's dive straight in, if that's okay. So if listeners aren't aware, um, Ollie and I get together every single month and we share, normally when it's just me and all three ideas that we've been thinking about and experimenting with and just reflect on them. But when we have a special guest like you, Zach, we divide the workload up. So we've each got two ideas. We've no idea what they're going to be. I'm going to start with you, Zach. So what do you want to discuss first? I would like to start by discussing standardizing entry and exit routines building wide. Um, at my school, uh, when I first got to this school, it was right after the pandemic. And I think we all sort of were taking things easy, uh, thinking, let's just see how it goes uh, with these kids. Let's kind of bring them in and um, maybe let's do some social emotional learning and kind of, uh, you know, get them, get them excited to be back in the classroom and we were in for a for quite a shock when uh students didn't seem to know uh how to attend school how to get into class uh and it didn't and it didn't improve until we did something and that was to first standardize the entry uh into each classroom and um a lot of a lot of teachers i think are against this idea of standardization or they would might call it micromanaging from the uh from leadership, uh, but this is what it looked like. Essentially, every teacher needed to stand at their door and needed to narrate uh, what they expected students to be doing. So for us, we walk on the right side of the hallway, and we call it a hallway, not a corridor. Uh, so walk on the right side, right? Oh, thank you for walking. Thank you for walking. Great job. And we're sitting here. We're building relationships. We're 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 speaking and we're telling. We're saying a script. I would call it a script. Uh, an internal mental script that each of us has, you know, made it made our own. Uh, but time to get out of the bathroom, time to get to class, and then as students come in, we transfer our energy to the students by making this space uh, seem and feel very serious, an academic learning space. Uh, welcome into the welcome into the classroom. Let's get ready to learn. And the big push was making sure that every class had a do now or an entry task on the board. And that do now had to be um, easy, uh, easy access to everyone. Uh, we, 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 we pushed, I pushed retrieval practice to be the main focus of those do nows. So if you're in math class, you're doing the problems from yesterday, maybe intermixed with a couple of problems from previous weeks. If you're in history class, you're maybe just recalling what was in the last lesson or a few facts from the previous few lessons mixed in with other previous stuff. And then, um, and here's the key part, we established rewards and consequences for students not uh, complying with doing the do now. And I can talk about those in depth uh, but that created a very uh, seamless and calm and strong start to the beginning of all of our lessons. And I feel it's extremely important. If you want to get teachers to teach, you got to do something like that if you work in a tough school. That's amazing. Um, I've got a few things on, but do you, want to, do you want to kick us off? Have you got anything for Zach straight away? Yeah, th that, thanks so much for sharing that, Zach. I think it's super, um, super relevant, super interesting, and something that lots of teachers have often thought about in their own classroom. Uh, but often schools don't approach at the whole school level, and I think it can be so much more powerful when it is approached at the whole school level. I am interested in um, a few things. One is the, like 
the the standards like a student's meant to be completely silent when they come in the classroom and and or, or is it kind of quiet uh, are there any times by which you expect them to be working when they come in and i'm also really interested in those kind of rewards and consequences uh, because often that's really what what it takes to to get it going uh, really effectively so yeah I'd, lo I'd love to hear about any of those things yeah, well, uh, it's unknown here in these parts anything related to silence in corridors. Um, it's on Twitter. <laughs> on Twitter, that's one of people's favorite things to to bring up. That and slant, right? If we can just go back and forth between uh, silent corridors and slant, all you know, uh, Twitter. Please never change Twitter. Um, but here, that is not a that is not something that's even in people's consciousness. Uh, I I think it would be something to try. Uh, I, I I, think it could be a, something that could be positive for our particular school because in our hallways, students are bashing into each other, right? They're slamming into each other as they're going places. They're doing this thing where they call, they just dunk on each other. So they see their friend way over there. They run up behind him and then they push their hands over the kid's head. The kid falls on the ground, backpack and pencils spill out everywhere. They run into bathrooms and then, you know, I'm standing on the side and I, you know, boys, get, come on, get out of the bathroom and find out, oh, you know, what's that flavor? It smells like cotton candy in there. They're vaping. Uh, they're huddled around a phone looking at pictures, inappropriate pictures. All of this could probably be expedited fixed if we had better standards of <laughs> walking in the classrooms. But to answer your question, when they get to the door and they hit that threshold, uh, it needs to be, uh, they, they need to be quite quiet i guess we could call it a voice we call it a voice level one uh it's not a voice level zero at this time uh and uh but when they when they they go and get their materials huge huge problem by the way is at the beginning we teachers were putting their materials in all different types of places we standardized it so that there was a mini table right at the door that has pencils paper notebooks all of that so they wouldn't cross all the way across the classroom going through the rows of desks, bumping the rows, bumping into each other, getting their materials. The materials are right there. If you forget your pencil, you've had, you've had a, you know, you have a reminder right there. Um, and then you get out and once you start writing, it is 100% silent, 100% silent. Uh, there's no do now that involves a turn and talk. There's no do now that involves, um, you know, acting something out or, you, you know, <laughs> manipulating objects. It's 100% silent with a pencil and with your notebook. Um, consequences and rewards. Are you ready? <laughs> um, so what we did is we created an online platform that's very similar maybe to a house system uh, where uh, teachers are putting points in for students based on specific behaviors. This behavior we call a kind of a category of behaviors is called ready to learn. Did you come in quietly? Did you sit down? Did you start writing? They give points. The points can be used for prizes. The points are used for surprise recesses and breaks. Points are used for like hot chocolate mornings or something like that, right? Um, the consequences are the teacher actually has on every one of their doors, the doors are glass, uh, has a card that on one side is green and the other side is red. If a single student in the entire classroom is talking or standing up or doing anything that is not uh, complying with the ready to learn expectation, the teacher flips the card from green on the outside to us to red. And the person in the hallway that's in charge of that 
enters into the classroom and quietly brings that student outside and we may call them we we may call home we typically just call home right away and say your child's not doing the ready to learn expectation and you'd think uh, parents would go why are you calling me about them not having you know uh them not doing a 15 minute or 10 minute do now like why why not call me for something more serious that's not the reaction we almost ever get we almost get almost always get I cannot believe my child <laughs> cannot come into the class and sit down and start an exercise. I will talk to them tonight. And in doing that, 80, 90% of kids do it without any reminders. And a very small percentage of students uh, have more intensive uh, reminders and, pro and, more, and more consequences, like, for example, detention. Oh, this is amazing, this. I love this. A um, couple of questions from me. Well, kind of three questions on me. It's a like three-for-one deal here for you, Zach. Um, the first is, what was the kid's reaction to this? What was the teacher's reaction to this? And how long from when you first implemented this would you say it took for this to become the norm and the routine? Right. Um, I'll first say that this, is, this was an instructional coaching initiative. Uh, this is something that I really believe as an instructional coach, you do not have to do everything one-on-one, -on -one, individual with teachers. You can create small groups of teachers and create something like a PLC, and you can do things building-wide. Uh, I, I, I approached the principal, I approached the people that were interested in fixing up the behavior, and I said, this is something that's going to work to improve behavior here. Um, and what it took was we got all the teachers to teach a lesson that was on the same PowerPoint. They taught a lesson about how this was going to go. We had a big assembly with each of the grades, first sixth grade, then seventh grade, then eighth grade. And we had a big assembly and we told them this is how it's going to go. Any questions, right? Is anyone confused about this, right? And we sent letters home. We called, we did robocalls. We did newsletters. We told the students in a hundred different ways. And then we started in sixth grade and we put all of us, all of us uh, administrators, leaders, instructional coaches, counselors, all in one hallway. Uh, you can imagine like nine, 10 adults all standing in the hallways, right? And we there's only 10 classrooms. So each classroom had one person and we were expecting maybe a maybe hundred kids are gonna be called out of here and we're gonna call a hundred people. Right. Uh, it happened to be the first time was 40 uh, <laughs> and we dealt with 40. And then the next period, it was 30. And the next period, it was 10. And by the end of the week, it was down to just for the full day for that grade. It was just down to two or three uh, per day. Uh, and then we moved up to seventh grade and then eighth grade. Wow, that's powerful. And again, no resistance from the teachers. Was everyone pretty much on board with this? Because again, as you say, it's a controversial thing, right? Like if you if you go on Twitter and you you look at this, it's a, a very deep divide. So, did was it challenging to get any of the teachers on board? We we are in a we are in a context in which the teachers will uh, spring for anything that will work. Uh, teachers don't survive very long here. Uh, just with the the year that I came in, the first year. Uh, everybody came and approached me and they, first of all, they hadn't had an instructional coach in a few years. Nobody wanted to work here, even though the job was open, it pays six figures, by the way, no one wanted the job, right? Uh, open office, op you know, nobody, a beautiful office with two windows. No one wanted this job. Uh, but, uh, on top of that, it, it, when I got there, two thirds or so of the staff were, were, were leaving. 
uh, looking for any school nearby, any school in the same district, because they knew they didn't have to deal with this. Um, so they're they're very open. The year before we rolled it out, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, we did do sixth grade first. Kids in sixth grade are a little more, a little more docile. You know, they're 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 eager to please. They're eager to fit into their new school, first year of a school. Um, and the teachers kind of. Every one of them I knew was one of those kind of go-getter teachers. And we got them together and we said, let's do it as a pilot. And when we piloted it, it worked. And I advertised the heck out of it. And the other grades were like, well, you know, when are we when are we going to do it? Why don't we get to do the pilot? You know, so it very quickly spread in, the, in that way. That's amazing. I've just got one more question. Then I'll hand over to all just in case there's anything else. Um, one thing I've noticed, and I'm going to discuss this with Ollie on, on a future podcast, is... In, in many of the schools I'm visiting at the moment, latecomers are an absolute nightmare for teachers, right? So you've got your do now sorted, the kids are settled, and then if it's first period, a kid's rocking up 10, 15 minutes late, and it's always a disruption. Or the lesson straight after break, two or three kids are late, they've nipped to the toilet and so on. Or in lesson changeover, some kids got lost and then they arrive late. And it it just disrupts the flow and that, that kind of golden silence that you may have established. Um, how do you deal with latecomers in this system, Zach? Um, we didn't deal with them with the card that I spoke about, right? We didn't change it to red. Uh, they came in, we we didn't double penalize them for being late, but we did. We do have an attendance system and the attendances trigger you know, uh, two, you know, five tardies, three tardies, whatever it is, late lateness to the class triggers a detention. Uh, we were able to hire a a, a person who is there. <laughs> we call them something like the restorative justice officer, something very, uh, <laughs> very much not what they do. But essentially, they are in charge of the detentions and they deal with this. Uh, you know, it is disruptive and the teachers can't. Um, they can't stand it. And really, it's about the presence of uh, the leaders, the administrators. Uh, we call them administrators. I know you don't call them that. But um, the, uh, the the principal, the vice principals, uh, the instructional coaches. We did even have a bit of pushback from people like in my role who, do I really need to be monitoring the hallways? Do I really need to have a presence there? Can I can I just meet with students one-on-one -on -one and counsel them? No, you can't. Not at this place. You know, not at this school anymore. Other schools maybe, but not here. So we are just everywhere. We're omnipresent and we're getting kids into class and it's a lot better. It's a lot better than it was before. And we have the detentions kind of to back it up. That's amazing. Ollie, anything extra from you on this? Thanks, Zach. That's super interesting. I mean, my, my main thing or my main takeaway there is how hard you had to go to make this work and how you really focused your energy on that year six level first. I've talked to lots of schools who implement kind of whole school behavior change initiatives and things like that. And that has that kind of layered approach isn't one that's that I've been made aware of before. Some schools might have done it, but maybe I didn't ask enough questions to kind of, to kind of get to it. But I think when you are trying to really turn around a culture expect like thinking about how many students are we practically going to have to follow up with here and the fact that you had like an estimate of 100 meant that you could actually prepare for that and start really really strong and send the core message to students oh yeah okay the teachers are serious here they weren't just just talking about it um how many students on average now are you seeing or are you having to call home for 
uh, over a day for this particular starter thing. I'm just wondering kind of what baseline you've managed to make it to. Well, I I hope they don't listen to this, but we're not we're not calling we're not calling so much anymore, right? I mean, we had to create a big spreadsheet and send out, you know, you get 15 calls, you get 15 calls. We're spreading out, you know, the we and people have jobs other than calling, you know, kids home. So once we reduced it down, once you get it to if you think of RTI in terms of the the pyramid and 80% of your kids are going to do, you know, can benefit from the core intervention. The next, you know, that tier two needs maybe a more intensive intervention and so on, right? We're trying to get most kids to comply with a very basic expectation, which is to start your lesson strong, right? Um, So after we got whittled it down to what I would consider our tier three high flyer students, these are students that really do struggle um, in a lot of, uh, a lot of ways, right? They, they're chronically absent. They, they maybe have brothers or sisters or they themselves are in sort of in gangs involved with violence. Uh, they've brought, you know, weapons in their previous school and they've been passed to us. And, uh, they, uh, that right. We've, we've had situations where, you know, spreading, you know, disgusting sort of images, uh, sexual images between each other, spreading, you know, drugs, marijuana, right. We have kids that are very, very, have very severe, uh, and, and traumatizing backgrounds. It's really, so those are the kids we, we're, we're going to pull them out. We're going to talk to them. We're going to see, we're going to, we know they're four grade levels behind. So we're going to sit next to them in the lesson and be like, hey, let's do this do now. Or, hey, let's do some mini whiteboards out on these these little cafe tables out here. We're going to try to teach them the material, right? So a lot of times now we're not calling anyone's parents. We're trying to figure out how can we get them back into the fold and learning <laughs> with within, you know, their core classroom. That's amazing. Fantastic. Oh, fantastic. All right, I'll. Over to you, mate. What's your first idea you've got for us? My first takeaway, it's, it was actually going to be my second one, but it, it relates quite well to what Zach was talking about. So I've I've bumped it up. So I mentioned that I, I've seen a lot of schools, many turnaround schools, uh, some, some of the more influential school visits, the ones that have had an impact on me, uh, the ones I've uh, conducted in the UK last year. I came over for two separate trips. And... I must say, when, whenever you see an amazing school, and when I say, or, or a school that has really, really high standards, probably more to the point where students are just hyper locked in, they're focused, pace of every lesson you go into is amazing. I often find myself thinking, yeah, but like, what does it actually take to get here? Like, how is this sustained? I can see how you could have like a bit of a inspired bump or inspired sprint at the start of a, a term or a year but what does it take to keep it going um and so I, i've been really trying to get my head around this and i a, a school that i have a lot of admiration for here in australia is or a set of schools is mastery schools australia they're in, in a similar context to you zach they they actually we don't have middle schools in australia but they have specifically essentially created a middle school because that's where the need is so their school goes from year four to year 10 which is very very similar just a little bit longer and they only take students who have basically been kicked out of mainstream they currently have i think they currently have four or five campuses with another two or three opening up next year and they've just been started by um Michael Roberts and Tony Hatton Roberts, who's a couple who've worked in education for a long time, and they just basically had the passion to, to make it happen. And 
The reason why I went and visited them for a second time actually is because Naveen Rizvi, who's a, a teacher and educator from the UK, had come out, they'd brought Naveen out over for a, just a term to try to step into a similar role to yours, Zach, as instructional coach and to try to really give them another additional boost of kind of standards and expectations and, and achievement from their teachers. Also because Mastery Schools is growing so fast, trying to staff the schools and train up their staff quickly and efficiently is a massive challenge. So I, I had heard that Naveen had done amazing things even in a single term on one of their campuses in particular uh, as a coach. And I really wanted to know what it was that she was doing that was you know, having such an impact. So I went up and what I saw was my, this is actually a terminology that comes from Michael. He summarized it as relentless precision. So basically within two hours of classroom visits, I saw Naveen go into six different teachers' classrooms, coach every one of these teachers, give every one of them feedback uh, and also, this included the kind of live coaching that you were talking about in a previous episode, Craig. You know, if she saw something where she thought there, saw there was an opportunity to kind of leverage leverage learning a little bit more, uh, raise the standards a bit more, she would just jump in and be like, oh, Miss, Miss Blah Blah, do you mind if I take over to, for two minutes? And she'd just jump in. And she, I saw her do this a few times, but one time that was particularly memorable was where students were doing some spelling practice. And it was clear that they were kind of doing choral response. It's, they used direct instruction programs. It was clear that a few of the students weren't 100% on that terminology. And so Naveen came in and she did three or four minutes instruction with these students. And she got them to spell, re-spell and re-spell again these words over and over again. She did like whole class. She did, I'm going to check you, I'm going to check you. Until at the end of those minutes, those students must have spelled each of those words about 10 times each. And every single one of them was just smashing it. And Naveen was like, okay, thanks everyone. Amazing job. I know you're sick of me now. I'm going to hand you back to Miss Boba. Um, and I just saw her hold this standard the whole time. And even the way that she spoke to teachers, I mean, it was just the intensity and the energy and the relentlessness and the precision of like the, the key uh, fine action steps that she was trying to support them to, to enact. It was just really clear to me that that's what it takes. It takes people who hold themselves to a high standard, which then kind of spreads out throughout the organization. And in many ways, I mean, that makes so much sense. And it, like I've seen it in my own classrooms because some, some days I am really on and I'm like, all right, we're going to have a really high standard here. And when, when I come into the classroom and students can kind of sense that that's, that's the zone I'm in, um, They'll, they'll come along for the ride generally. You know, you, you might have a couple of students make a peep in the la in the first couple of minutes and you might give one a, a warning and you might move a, move a couple more and they're like, all right, he means business today. And other days I'm kind of a bit out of it as I am today <laughs> and I'm not holding the standard as highly. And students kind of detect that straight away and things start to slip even within the course of a single lesson. So it's just this idea of you know, regulation is a top-down process and this, this, we need people in our schools who ideally everybody, right? And we, the more, the, the, the reason why I was keen to share this today is because I think that all of us 
particularly myself, speaking for myself, can be more relentless, relentlessly precise in terms of the stands we're trying to hold. But I think this is one of those kind of dispositional characteristics that you need a person or people, and ideally multiple people, in a school to really set and hold a standard. And that takes a hell of a lot of effort. Uh, but it's really what it takes. Now, I'm sure there are, are other ways to do it, and I'm sure over time it becomes more of a cultural thing rather than an, an effort-supported thing solely. Uh, but that was just a really, really interesting insight for me to understand what it does take to hold high standards in schools. That's great, that all. Um, Zach, I'll, I'll give you the first go at this, and I've got a few thoughts as well. Yeah, my first thought is really about that live coaching piece you said, right? That's, I mean, that's my... That's my life, sort of. Um, I kind of liken it to, uh, you know, singing in public a little bit where, you know, of course, some people don't mind. They'll sing, you know, uh, live and they don't even need a drink before they do it. Right. They'll just start singing and they love it. And other people, they need to sort of build themselves up to uh they need to build up that confidence and they need to sort of pump themselves up in advance. I think I'm sort of in the middle right now. I was wondering what you think about when you're elbow to elbow with the teacher or you see something and you just want to, you just want to dive in or you want to take over the classroom, like how you, how you get yourself to do it when there's so many social dynamics between you and your colleagues and, and so on. <laughs> mm. It's a really interesting question. So I think, you have to have a strong relationship with the person who you're jumping in for already. And it has to be pre-established as like, this is going to be the norm. And they have to really, really believe that you 100% have your their best interests in heart and you at, at heart and you need to do it in such a way that that's clear. Otherwise, there's a huge risk that they're going to feel that you're doing a like, let me show you how it's done kind of thing, which I mean, in many ways you are, but for them to take that positively, that culture needs to be there. Interestingly, at mastery schools, the way that they do that is they they have assistant teachers there, basically people who are doing their teacher training, um, who are in every classroom as as support. And for some of for some time for some of the time and for some of the programs like spelling mastery, the the assistant teacher will actually deliver most of the lesson. But there's the the, the potentially tricky part of the lesson is error correction. And this is where, you know, this is basically, I just described it, Naveen jumping in for some error correction there. And so what will actually happen is these assistant teachers will be running the standard script, scripted program. But when students are really struggling, the standard teacher will jump in and run the error correction. So you've actually already set up this culture where people are jumping in to support each other and help learning. So the teachers do it for the assistant teachers. Therefore, and this is that that's something that Naveen set up as well. Therefore, when Naveen jumps in for the standard teacher, it's just a part of this same continuum. So that that's the kind of um, the cultural piece. As for, I I think it's an interesting one you mentioned there, Zach. The kind of the the challenge for the coach to do the live coaching and the in terms of revving themselves up and and so on. Um, one of the most powerful things I find in terms of whenever it I need to stand up in front of people or do something that's a little bit challenging is I think about, I try to get myself in a mindset of rather than kind of presenting or performing more of a mindset of sharing. And I find when I'm in a mindset of sharing, uh, I'm just more, much more comfortable to give things a go and to also lead with a sense of vulnerability because 
Like I'm not saying I have all the answers here. I'm just sharing something that I think might work better. It might not work better, but no matter what happens afterwards, we're gonna be able to have a good conversation about it. And we're gonna talk about what worked, what didn't, and why that was the case. So I think for me trying to rev myself up to do a demo like that, if I could kind of frame it as like, I'm gonna actually, so you've just had a crack at something. I'm gonna have a crack at something. We're gonna be able to discuss it later. Uh, Hopefully this is helpful to you in some way, whether as an example or non-example that can be a way that kind of takes the pressure off the coach, but also sets up that culture where uh, it's you're not like necessarily sitting above them as much. So a couple of ideas there. That's really good. That's great. Um, anything else, Zach, before I just jump in here? No, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, so just a slightly different angle on this all. So um, I'm a massive fan of Naveen. She's um, we, we, I've booked her in for the podcast for, for Jan to reflect on some of the work that um, she's been doing because it sounds absolutely, absolutely fascinating. But I'll tell you what your story's got me reflecting on there, and it's, again, something I've experienced recently. So I often, well, I always come into schools as an external person. And sometimes, well, a lot of the time, I'm doing it over kind of four or five days spread over the course of a term. But crucially, I'm not in that school day to day when I'm offering the support. And it always blows my mind, although perhaps it shouldn't, how much kind of gets lost in translation. So I'll do a CPD session at the end of day one with the maths department on something like checking for listening or checking for understanding. And then I'll come in a week later or two weeks later and things have gone off the boil a little bit, like the standards have dropped. And just when you're describing what Naveen's talking about there it just makes me realize how important it is to have somebody who's permanently in that school who's going to always be there who at a moment's notice can come into your lessons they can come in five times a week if if you want them to and they're going to be there next week and they're going to be there next week because when you're talking about like the precision that Naveen's on out there with the language she's using the modeling she's using and so on you can't just have somebody come in even for a day and deliver that to staff and then, you know, cross the fingers and hope magically you're going to get that same standard. So it's just really made me think about, and again, Zach, this will kind of tie into your role, right? You, you're you in there day in, day out. And it, I think there's a real challenge for both people delivering external CPD, but also the people who organize that CPD to think, and we've talked about this before, I'll, how you kind of sustain it. And I just think whenever we're talking about something as precise as what you're talking about there the work that Naveen's doing it's just so hard unless you've got somebody in there kind of day to day I don't know if that makes sense all at all Uh, I couldn't I couldn't agree more I think you you need people leading this I mean this is so this is why we've created at at Step Lab the certificate in coaching leadership because we've recognized that the person who's implementing coaching in a school needs to be like really really good really committed and also supported uh, for an extended period of time, which is why we do like fortnightly check-in and accountability check-ins, because it's really, really hard to keep up that momentum uh, and that motivation. Some people can do it. Like Naveen seems to have like a bottomless pit of energy to, to hold these standards high. And that's amazing. They're the kind of people you uh, can ideally hire, but it's 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 hard to, to find people with that level of energy, right? So one, having a, a person who whose job it is, either sole job or like there's a, you know, it's the vast proportion of their job and they don't have to do all this curriculum writing that then attracts them to their their office so they're not wandering the classrooms and, and so on because that's the core part of it being seen. And two, having some mechanisms to keep them motivated, whether it be a weekly check-in where you say, how many classroom visits have you done this week? How many, you know, whatever it might be. Those kind of things are absolutely crucial, I think, to keep the standards high. 
Yeah, just just one more thing on that before I just give Zach an opportunity if he wants. Um, one thing when I do my coaching work that I've really tried to steer kind of teachers away, schools away from is um, often within a day, they'll ask me to work with four teachers, to coach four teachers. So I'll watch four lessons or four portions of lessons, and then we'll have four coaching sessions with those teachers. And invariably, they want me working with their ECTs, so their kind of novice teachers in their first kind of two years of teaching, or teachers who are struggling a bit, you know, results are down and so on and so forth. But the point I always make is, chuck in some of your best teachers into the mix there, your most experienced teachers, because they're the ones who are going to be driving them, driving the thing forward when I, you know, drive drive back home. So you want to get your good teachers to be exceptional teachers so they can bring everyone along. And I, I think that's going to be more, far more effective in the long term than getting your weaker teachers up to that standard of good. Again, if, if that makes sense at all. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. You need to think about systems, basically. You think you need to think about how am I going to, how am I, how are we going to sustain this? Clearly, Zach has thought about that, going back to his standardizing entry and exit routines idea. It's like, okay, we're going to set this up. There's going to be some energy at the start, but like what's actually going to keep this going long term? If people aren't ask, answering that question, it's really just a flash in the, the pan. Absolutely. Zach, any final reflections on, on Ollie's uh, point there? Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry to keep talking about the energy of the coach, you know, but I, I, I've I, said this before because instructional coaching, you know, may be, may be one of the buzzwords that, you know, that are, that are going around right now. But it's almost like we talk about the debates in instructional coaching being that kind of directive coaching and that facilitative coaching. And I feel like the true that the, the true nature of this job at least here where i am is i don't even think very many instructional coaches are coaching <laughs> and uh and i and i and I, I that's only my feeling from visiting them and doing our plcs with them and 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 getting in and i think there's uh, what you what you say about that energy being uh so important uh and, and because with a classroom of kids they keep you straight, right? They're right in front of you. And if you let the, if you drop the ball, they're going to, you know, you open up a void, they're going to fill it, right? You have to come to class prepared in a lot of ways. Uh, but you don't have to do that with this job, at least not mine. You really can make your own schedule. And so it is something about that will and that drive, that personal accountability that I think is is really important. Uh, so I'm glad you mentioned that. Definitely. And I, th I think schools can do a better job of, of driving that like i was alluding to before if if you have a weekly check-in with with your line manager and there's expectations about how many classrooms you've been in and and how many coaching sessions and and so on that can be a real motivator but it's about recognizing the importance and the value of that but i think i think and, I, and i'm 100 on on side with you zach a lot of people just aren't doing the coaching whether that be aren't even getting into the classrooms or when they have a coaching conversation, I would say it's not really coaching unless you end up on like a, a call action step or action for the teacher to go on, go away and do, ideally with some rehearsal and things like that. So if your coaching is missing some of those active ingredients of what makes it effective, then you, you're not really coaching either. Amazing. Brilliant. Okay, should I do my first one? So, um, right, strap yourselves in for this. I've got a, n a new idea that I've nicked off someone, right? So I'll just fire up my uh, Evernote doc so I don't mess this up. So I've been re well listening to an audio book, and it's by a guy called Ross Atkins, and he's, he works for the BBC. He's a journalist. 
and kind of like a news anchor and so on. Anyways, just put this book out and it's called The Art of Explanation. So the title kind of stood out to me straight away. And basically he, he describes how as kind of like a, a broadcaster, as a journalist, he's got to take in all this information and he's got to convey it in a way that's going to make sense to a pretty diverse audience. So I got this and I thought, you know what, there's got to be something in here for, for, for teachers trying to explain things. And he has this concept that really kind of hit home to me and he calls it obstacles to understanding. And he thinks, he, and when he's kind of putting together an explanation, he thinks how many of, uh, these are things to try and avoid, these pitfalls to avoid. What are the things that could get in the way of my explanation making sense, in our case, to, to, to our students? So what I've, what I've tried to do, listening to, listening to what he says, and also thinking uh, about kind of my own teaching and so on and so forth, I've put a list of nine of these obstacles that I'm just going to go through here. But this is very much a working process. So what I want you to do, Zach and Ollie, if that's okay, is are there any of these that you would get rid of or perhaps merge together? And perhaps more interestingly, have I missed anything? Can you think of any additional obstacles to understanding that there might be? Okay, so I've got nine of them. So straight in at number one, an obstacle to understanding is kids not listening. If your kids are not listening, there's no chance of them understanding. If they are listening, it's no guarantee they're going to understand. But if kids are not listening, they're not going to understand. So first, we've got to make sure our kids are listening, paying attention. Another obstacle to understanding is a lack of prerequisite knowledge. And I often see this. Teachers dive into trying to build a new idea, but they're building it upon really shaky foundations. And if the prerequisite knowledge isn't secure and we just dive straight into the new stuff, that's going to be a real obstacle for students to understand this new idea. Okay, so that's number two. I'll go through all these again at the end. Number three is a, just a poor explanation, a waffly explanation, one that's going off on tangents and so on and so forth. Just, just a real poor explanation that perhaps makes sense to the teacher because they haven't scripted it, because they haven't thought it through and so on. The kids are like, what the hell's going on here? That's definitely an obstacle to understanding. Number four, Ollie Lovell, this is right up your street, is extraneous load as perhaps part of that explanation. So it could be split attention effect. It could be redundancy effect. It could be a load of things that just suck up kids' attention and kind of divert that tension away from what they could be thinking about, which is the content of the explanation. So this could be poorly designed slides. It could be a lots of kind of visual or auditory noise going on the room, going on in the room. But extraneous load, I think, is going to be an obstacle to understanding. So that's four. Number five, and I think this is different to poor explanations, is not breaking things down. And this is classic cognitive load theory. Um. And the reason I have kind of separated this from poor explanation is you could have a really brilliant explanation that's really coherent and it makes a load of sense to an expert, but to a novice, there's just too many ideas going on there. So by not breaking things down and trying to sort out one idea at a time before bringing them back together, I think that's a real obstacle to understanding. So I've separated that from poor explanations. So that's five. We've got four more to go. Um, Unreliable checks for understanding. So I think that's an obstacle to understanding because it stops the teacher getting a sense of whether things are on the right track or not. So this would be the classic like calling upon a confident high attaining student to answer a question to check whether that explanation's making sense or not. That's an unreliable check for understanding because their response is unlikely to be representative of the response of the rest of the class. 
or it's a classic. Does that make sense? And like, what kid in the world is going to put their hand up and say, no, it doesn't. So an unreliable check for understanding may actually be an obstacle to understanding because it stops the teacher from being aware that things are going off the boil a little bit. Okay, we've got three more to go. Um, an ineffective response from the teacher could be an obstacle to understanding. So let's imagine that the teacher's really good at doing checks for understanding. So they've got all the kids doing the mini whiteboards. But the kids hold up the mini whiteboards. It's clear that there's a load of confusion in the room. And the teacher just goes, all right, okay, yeah, I can see we've got that and just cracks on. Or they kind of give a bit of a waffly kind of explanation to it and then move on. In other words, they don't address the evidence effectively that they can see in front of them. And that's going to stop kids understanding the idea as a whole. So that's number seven. Final two. Um, no opportunity to embed and consolidate. So the teacher gives the explanation, but then cracks onto the new idea. And kids don't have an opportunity to kind of digest it, work through it at their own pace, have a chance to discuss with a neighbor, just get some silent, independent work going on. So just kind of moving on too fast from one idea to the other, even if their explanation is really strong, no opportunity to embed and consolidate is going to be an obstacle to understanding. And the final, final one, you'll be pleased to know, um, and this is going to feed into my second idea as a bit of a kind of a teaser to this, no opportunity to retrieve. So this is the classic performance versus learning. Kids seem to understand it in the moment, but if we then don't revisit that idea at intervals going forward, at the start of next lesson, in next week's low stakes quiz or whatever, then that's going to be a real obstacle to understanding because kids are going to forget it. So to recap, here are my nine, and then I'll hand it over to you, Zach, just in case you have anything, and then Ollie, you can tear this idea apart if you want. So firstly, obstacle to understanding number one, kids not listening. Secondly, a lack of prerequisite knowledge. Third, a poor explanation from the teacher. Fourth, extraneous load. Five, not breaking things down in the explanation. Six, an unreliable check for understanding. Seven, an ineffective response to that check for understanding. Eight, no opportunity to embed and consolidate the idea. And nine, no opportunity to retrieve the idea. I'll shut up now. Zach, over to you. Oh, I'm so glad you said I'll shut up now. Be not because you did, but because that's my favorite line from your podcast. I'm so <laughs> I'm so happy you just said it. Um, you know, uh, great. I I love the list. Uh, I actually do a presentation on explanations, which is funny. Uh, so uh, and it kind of follows some of those those points. Uh, you mentioned the poor explanation. Um, there's it's, there's nothing uh less useful to the teacher than going up to them and saying, your explanation was poor, right? Um, so how do we operationalize that? You know, that's the question. How do we how do we say uh, that wasn't, especially if we talk about clear, that wasn't clear. We can say a great explanation is crystal clear. It's concise, it's, it's succinct, it's bulletproof, right? But what does it mean when it's a presentation is unclear, you know? and I typically go into the realm of the teacher clarity research, which is related to Rosenshine's. It's in the same uh, process product research. Uh, and what they would do is they would give, uh, once they started experimenting with this stuff, they would start, uh, they would give one group an unclear scripted 
explanation, and they would give the next one a clear explanation. And the unclear explanations were full of what they called vagueness terms, or they were full of mazes. I love that term mazes, because the mazes were basically like, the, the explanation's turning, and then it goes this direction, and we, you know, and oh, but I forgot to tell you about this part, and then that thing. The kids are going back and forth, being jarred and kind of played around with as they're trying to follow the train of thought of the speaker. Um, and the last one I always try to mention with that poor one is uh, this idea of interjecting uh, unnecessary or irrelevant information. This is sort of like your seductive details or your... Uh, your sort of discontinuous thoughts. Uh, I, <laughs> I, sorry that I'm rambling, uh, but uh, I love I, I love to tell the story of how when I was trying to entertain my students one time, and I had drawn a, a Venn diagram on the board, and they just seemed kind of bored. I was explaining how to compare, how to contrast, and I interjected something for the purpose of entertaining them, and that was I said, "Doesn't the Venn diagram look a lot like a butt?" like a bum, right? And of course, now that I'm writing on this thing, all the all especially the boys it seemed like were jumping up and down and shaking their their bottoms in elementary school, right? And every time I wrote, they they couldn't they couldn't get this out of their mind. So I think really only saying the words that you want to say and sticking to the point uh, is 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 what I think when it comes to a clear presentation. I love that all. I, lo I love that. Just a couple of things on that. I I'll, firstly, I like the fact you've gone for butt and bum there. You're appealing to all, all, all the all the globe with the, with those two. So I, I love that. Um, and just on this, you're right. Um, and it's just, uh, this is why I wanted to run the, this idea by you. Because as I say, it's a bit kind of hazy at the moment. I'll tell you what I think is quite a good measure of how clear an explanation is. And I think any teacher can experiment with this. And that is, if you do a, it's, it's basically how easy it is to do a check for listening. So I'll give you an example of this, right? So if your explanation is all over the show, and as you say, going down kind of blind alleys and so on, if you try and check whether the kids have been listening and they start firstly kind of struggling to articulate what you've just said, or you kind of hear your explanation kind of played back to you and you think, my God, what the hell was that? Then you start to realize that it's pretty, pretty poor explanation because the unfortunate thing is when teachers give explanations, if you don't check for listening, everything's making sense in your head because you're the only one hearing it and so on and so forth. But it's only when you get the kids to repeat things back to you that you think, oh my God, that was absolutely terrible. So I think if it's relatively straightforward for you to do a check for listening and what's coming back makes sense, it's probably not a bad proxy for the quality of that explanation. So something like if I'm trying to explain what a quadratic equation is, I may something say something like, this is a quadratic equation. What type of equation is it? Ollie. And then Ollie's going to say to me, a quadratic equation. Whereas if I say, all right, so this thing on the board, so this is a type of equation and there's X and so on. Like I can't check for listening there because it's what information do I want back? So I think if you get into your checks for listening, that can be quite a good signal of how kind of clear your explanation is, if, if that makes sense, Zach. Excellent. Um, Al, anything on, on this uh, this meandering list I've got? Yeah, a few things. My, my first question, Craig, is what was the original list from Ross Atkins? Yeah, so, yeah, I thought you'd ask that. So, I, I'm being poorly prepared, I haven't got it written down, but it was, it, I'll be honest with you, and I thought it was... It was a little bit on the vague side. So it was um, kind of falling into this idea of clarity, um, length, 
tangents and so on and so forth. Um, and again, they were useful because, as I say, it stimulated this idea, but it wasn't. It certainly wasn't talking about responsiveness and so on and so forth because he's thinking more of kind of broadcasting as opposed to you know kind of responding and interacting. I guess. Mm, okay, fair enough. Um, yeah, because I was wondering, like, he's a broadcaster. How do broadcasters check for understanding? Um, yeah, interesting. I. It seems to me you've created like basically a, a template of multiple steps for just effective teaching rather than effective explanation. Um, what, what would you say to that? <laughs> Very aggressive, that all. I like Wasn't it? Sorry. It wasn't meant to be. I like it. No, it's good. It's kept me on edge. I like that. Um, I was... Yeah, I'm not so sure. Well, it's, it's interesting you say that, right? Because I've got this kind of series of 10 workshops that I do. And like one of them is on checking for understanding. One of them is on responsive teaching. One of them is on memory, which are all essentially kind of steps. Well, kind of one of nine of these things that, that I'm talking about here. But I still think it's kind of specific enough to thinking about explanations. And I, I almost, we've talked in the past all right about checklists, and I want this to almost be kind of a bit of a checklist that when you're given an explanation, just to kind of have a little flick down this list of nine things and not to do it in any depth or anything, but just think, have I got, a, do I know my kids are listening? Have I got a reliable check for understanding here? Um, how am I going to respond to this? Just as a bit of a kind of simple checklist. And then if any of them are kind of deficient, you can then take a kind of deeper dive into them. So I think it works focusing specifically on explanations, but maybe maybe it's a bit broad. I don't I don't know. No, I think I think it's good. I think it's um it's I mean I 100 percent agree with all of them. I think but maybe the only thing what your initial prompt was like, what what have you missed out or what could mm -hmm. be like amalgamated Maybe the only thing that I thought was could be amalgamated was the idea of like poor explanations. And ex when you talked about extraneous load, you, you you gave examples like redundancy and split attention, which I would see as part of giving good explanations or not mm -hmm. giving poor mm -hmm. explanations. So I saw them as being similar, similarly with not breaking things down. So in terms of having like the level of granularity of each of these nine steps, like you've got one for reliable checks for understanding yeah so yeah. having one for one for clear explanations which in, which includes like breaking things down extraneous load i think would be more of a matched granularity level that being said if this if the focus of this is on explanation then maybe having a high level of granularity around the explanation the kind of three steps related to explanation is um might be more helpful um the other thing i was wondering is like how does this fit in so something I've noticed that as we as we move on with these uh, chats, Craig is you. I mean, you love a you love a model, right? You, lo you, you love, love a model, model too. That you love them too, uh, though, right? That's I'm all why about that's the I'm preaching to the choir here. Right? We're all about models, um, and I'm wondering how this one fits in with this fantastic book that I have on my shelf. Oh, he's, where's he gone here, listeners? Here he Tips comes. Tips for teachers. Oh, um, nice. Yeah, so, correct. So I'm, I'm wondering, so if I go, let's, let's have a look at the contents here. Because, cause, cause, like, what do, we want, what do we want to support teachers to do? We want to support them to build coherent mental models around what quality instruction is and related fields. And each time we provide them with more information, we want to... You know, if we if we hark back to the work of Sarah Cottingham translating Elzebel, we want to kind of like signal where in that schema we want them to attach this new framework. So um, 
I'll, I'll just I'll just read out your the the contents of your book. People should really read this book. I just finished it the other day. It's absolutely fantastic. Craig's not paying me anything mate. to say this. Um, but here are the kind of the, the 12 steps in the little, the map on the start. Well, there's how to use this book, habits and routines, the means of participation, checking for understanding, responsive teaching, planning, prior knowledge, explanations, modeling and worked examples, student practice, memory and retrieval, homework marking and feedback and improving as a teacher. So I guess my question, Craig, is do you see, do you see this? I mean... All of all of what you've said is already covered in your fantastic mm-hmm, book, mm-hmm. Tips for Teachers. So, what do you see this adding to Tips for Teachers? Yeah, it's a good question, and I can give a definite answer for once to this because each of my Tips for Teachers chapters is a kind of presentation, a CPD session that I do, and. So this list, I'm thinking, which one does it fit into? Which of my CPD sessions? So it's definitely the explanations one, but I think it's kind of towards the end of the explanations one. So as I say, kind of a bit of a checklist. I'm I'm really seeing this as a bit of a, almost kind of, you can imagine it being like on a teacher's desk before they start to give an explanation or when they're thinking about planning for an explanation. So yeah, I I think it's going to fit into the kind of explanations thing. But I would also say that um, I'm kind of restructuring everything at the moment. So maybe it'll kind of shift around a little bit, but it'll certainly be kind of part of the explanation as a more kind of reflection style list, mm. I think. Yeah, fair enough. I, I see it as kind of a way of structuring the content in tips for teachers already. Because when I when I look at the, the order of this, Habits and routines, yep, super important. I'd imagine that's why you brought it first. Means of participation, Mm -hmm. similarly, that's around the habits thing. Checking for understanding, maybe you put that early on because that is also, like, really crucial. Whereas um, this, I find people find it much easier to store information in their long-term memory if you present it to them in the sequence that they're going to use it in real life slash in the sequence that's, like, the narrative of the lesson or the the yeah, the narrative arc of the lesson. And what you've got here, what you've presented today, these nine steps, that's the kind of the narrative arc of the lesson. We've got kids not listening. That's basically what Zach was doing at the at the start, getting students to come in in a way where they're focused and, and tuned in. You know, lack of prerequisite knowledge, thinking about what are they bringing to... So it's actually, I think it's easier to remember this sequence you've presented today than the, the sequence um, in your book already, which, you know, which is fine. I think there's a, that's a great structure as well. But I think that that's another benefit to this additional refining work that you've done as a kind of organizing cognitive structure for some of the work you've done already. Not that all. I just need a catchy name and some kind of catchy acronym, right? So I can trademark this and get everybody everybody chatting about it. No, that's good. That's good. Thanks all for that. Not always valuable feedback. I know I, I genuinely appreciate that, mate. Um, Zach, any final thoughts? Uh, and if not, you can kind of segue straight to your uh, your next idea. Yeah, I'll go to my next idea. Um, I'm excited about this. I actually, I almost want to do this first, uh, but uh, we started with behavior because that's sort of a precondition <laughs> for learning. Uh, and we're gonna, we're gonna. I, I wanted to talk about this uh, gradual release or guidance fading that uh, we often talk about in in cognitive load theory. Here's my tip as a sentence: improve your gradual release by incorporating six direct instruction shifts into your teaching, right? And um, when I say, uh, well, I'll give, I'll give a little bit of background. Cognitive load theory supports this idea of guidance fading, the guidance fading effect. And what it does is it, it describes 
perhaps starting with a worked example, slowly eliminating the steps of the worked example to present a series of completion problems. So maybe like the last step of the math problem is omitted and the student then has to solve it themselves, right? Not only does it make them pay attention maybe more to the, the rest of the steps, but uh, it, it now we're talking about retrieval, right? Or we're talking about sort of more active cognition. Um, and then at the end, you finally have faded this away and uh, the student is independently problem solving. Uh, it sort of is the bridge. It's the beautiful thing between being a novice and being an expert or sort of those middle, those middle stages. Um, up until very recently, I, um, that's pretty much the only guidance I had around that scaffolding guidance fading. I sort of described that to teachers. And then, uh, one day I stumbled upon, um, I found out that our school would had a, a lot of resources and in there was this direct instruction program, DI capital DI, an Engelman direct instruction program called corrective math. And I, as an instructional coach, I make my own schedule. I really wanted to use this darn program because I had never taught with a real direct instruction program. Uh, I've talked to teachers about this project called Project Follow Through, which showed that direct instruction programs outperformed all of the uh, inquiry-based learning programs in the uh, 1960s and 70s. Uh, I was really excited to use it. And as I've been using it with this small group of five, I have noticed that the gradual release is beautiful and it is gradual and it is slow reducing of scaffolds. And I, I, I needed to look deeper into the research or deeper into the theory of instruction uh, to figure out what this program was doing. And so here I am. So we're going to do six gradual release shifts that come from direct instruction. Are you both ready? <laughs> I'll tell you, I'm loving this. Like, you're a good guest, I'll tell you now. You thought this through. I love it. I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I'm ready to go. <laughs> and so, and I know people who are listening to this don't have access to these direct instruction programs, but these are now, what I'm presenting to you are principles, right? You can take these principles, you can apply them to any uh, sort of explicit teaching system. Uh, so let's start with shift number one. Shift number one is the obvious one that is pretty much the same as the guidance fading effect. It says, go from an emphasis on the teacher role as a source of information to an emphasis on the learner's role as a source of information. So when you're starting a lesson, you're starting with teacher direction, right? You're starting uh, up at the front, confident, uh, leading the learning, and you are the one who is uh, imparting the knowledge, while as you slowly go on through the sequence of, of lessons, more and more the students are the ones who are completing the problems, responding to the, the problems, self-explanation, you know, explaining the material in their own words, applying, applying the knowledge. Um, that's the easy one. The rest of these are, I feel like, are, are, could, are, could be new to teachers. Uh, shift number two, go from out loud to in their head, right? And the other way to say that would be go to overt uh, uh, problem solving to covert problem solving. So basically, when you're first starting with a direct instruction program, 
you're trying to get as much unison choral response as possible. You're trying to get them to say the material out loud so that you can check for understanding. But as you go through your lessons, you can slowly start fading out how much they are saying the material out loud because they're going to be writing it, right? They're going to be doing it. And it's okay now that it's in their head. The teacher is secure in the belief that they they know it through all their formative assessment. So shift from lots of out loud at first to it's mostly in their head towards the end, right? The next shift, shift number three, go from massed practice to distributed practice. Um, a lot of times when we talk about space practice and the cognitive science uh, uh, world, uh, we, we, we make massed practice uh, sound like it's the worst thing in the world, right? We should really space out that practice. We need to interrupt the forgetting curve. But when you're just first learning something, you need to practice it many times in a row right away. You don't want to start spacing it out uh, because I, I feel like at that point, the, 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 the difficulty is no longer desirable, right? It's, it's, too, it's too hard to remember uh, what you what you did two or three days later, you need to do a lot of repetition in a row. Go from mass practice to distributed practice. Shift number four, similar. Go from immediate feedback to delayed feedback. Um, you're gonna, uh, again, a lot of people think maybe immediate feedback is always the best and you're gonna wanna give students a lot of corrections. You're gonna wanna correct every little error so they don't embed a misconception. Uh, but as you... As you work with them, imagine you're, you know, you're, you, you want them to write an essay. At the beginning, you're giving them corrections on their punctuation and you're giving them corrections on their transition words, corrections on every little thing you teach, but then you're eventually going to have them apply that knowledge and that, that feedback is not going to be immediate because they, they can't write it. You need to, once they're applying it in a more uh, complex context, uh, you are, your, your feedback is going to be delayed just a bit, but that's okay because we're in the application stage. We're at the end of the gradual release. Shift number five, uh, go from heavily prompted to unprompted. And for this, I thought I would uh, kind of read a reading example. So imagine you're at the beginning. I said uh, go from heavily prompted to unprompted. So it, imagine you're, you're teaching reading, beginning reading, and uh, you're trying to teach them about the bossy E, right? That when you have an E at the end of a word like rate, that the E makes the A not say ah or ah. It makes the A say its own name, rate, right? And so at the, at be, at the beginning, you're going to have a lot of prompts to direct attention towards all of that information and you're going to slowly fade it out. So it would look like this. This is from the this is from Reading Mastery, I believe. Um, remember, when there is an E at the end, this letter says its name. Is there an E at the end? Students say yes. Will this letter, point to it again, say its name? All the students say yes. What is its name? All the students say A. So what is this word? Students say rate. Well, now you're going to fade those prompts to the next time. And eventually, you're going to get to a very unprompted version of that where you're going to just show up a word like rate and you're going to say, what is this word? All the kids say rate, right? And and, and towards the, at the very end of this, you're just having the students finding those words in a story or in a book and they're reading them in real books, right? Completely, completely unprompted. The last one, 
And I feel like I feel like I yeah I my empathy was with you, Craig. Because when you go down a list like this, you get towards the end, you're like, ah, am I sustaining attention? Do they do they still care about this? Right? I get to that. I get to this last one. Shift six. Go from simplified context to complex contexts. And that's that's like what I just said with finding the word in a real storybook, writing that real essay, doing the real application exercise. At the beginning, we kind of want to have uh, manufactured sort of their, their, the, you want to create context or, or problems that don't really feel very real at all because you've broken them down so that they're simply drills or exercises. You've broken the material down just because you want them to repeat and revoice and practice those bits. But when you get to the end, you want that product typically to be something worth sharing or worth doing. So writing that essay, uh, doing that presentation happens towards the end. In a more, That's the more realistic or more complex context. Yep, that's my list. Zach, I love it. As I say, we love we me and I love a structure. We love a system. We love a list, and you you've done it all there. That's amazing. I'm going to hand over to all for this, but I'm just going to ask a little favour. Can we not talk about number three, the master distributed? Because spoiler alert, I'm going big on that in my final takeaway, and it'll all be kicking off. So, all over to you. Love that, and it's all it's often funny how we end up talking about similar things, Craig. There's often I don't know. There's must be some sort of a connection between us and any gifts the guests that we have on that means that uh, we're we're somehow stimulating each other's thought across the world in between these discussions. It's great, Zach. I think this is a fantastic framework, mate. Like these are all all ideas that I've come across and that have that I've encountered in different areas and domains. Um, but I haven't seen one put them together. And I think the way you've put them together with kind of a repeated structure, go from A to B, makes it really clear for viewers or listeners how they're all related and how they all relate to this idea of gradual release. So I think you're onto something here, mate. And I would encourage you to uh, turn it into a book, actually, uh, if if you're not already. Uh, are you already? No. <laughs> okay, no. you definitely okay. should. Okay, okay. It's in it. Yes, it is in a chapter of a book I'm writing. But yeah, continue, continue. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I think it's. I think it's really good. I think my favorite one, or the one that I think actually, there's probably two two favorites, and these are because I think actually maybe there's three favorites. Maybe there's four. No. Let me talk about a couple. Um, it's it's really good, Zach. I'm, I'm excited about this. Something that teachers often don't do particularly well is the we do. You know, when I spoke to Anita Archer, she said, I said, Anita, what's the biggest mistake teachers make in their instruction? And she said, they skip, they skip the we do. Um, I also note that you, uh, you, you quoted uh, Anita earlier when you said, uh, avoid, you didn't use a full quote, but you said, avoid the void. And she, she likes to say, avoid the void or they will fill it. Um, anyway, back to this. So p- teachers skip the we do. But that's because they often don't know how to do it, right? What is a what is a we do? What does a we do even look like? And to my mind, and um, kind of dissecting some of Anita's work and also looking at some of the DI programs that you have, the we do is that's step five. Go from heavily prompted to unprompted. So basically what you're doing, well, the, the step before the heavily prompted is the I do. It's basically the teacher saying, look, this is a bossy E. A bossy E makes the preceding vowel say its own name. Let me give you an example and then goes through it, right? So that's the that's the I do. The we do is exactly what you're talking about. You're basically stepping students through the cognitive process required to solve the problem. 
and you gave us this great example. Is there an E at the end of the word? Yes. Is there a preceding vowel? Yes. What does the E do? It makes the vowel say its name. Okay. Is the vowel going to say whatever it might be? I don't, I don't remember it exactly. Exactly. And so teachers often, I, th I don't think it hasn't been, or it hasn't been codified well enough what the we do actually is. And I think saying going from heavily prompted to unprompted is a really, really nice way to codify uh, that we do. Uh, I think also bringing in the idea of immediate to delayed, this is probably my second favorite, uh, number three, no, I'm joking, Craig, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna touch that one. Uh, number four, go from immediate to delayed feedback. I think is a really, really nice one as well because there's a lot of debates about kind of immediate and delayed feedback, uh, you know, which one's better and so on. But it's, as with most things in education, it's a question of, you know, where does it sit in the instructional routine and what are you trying to achieve from it? And so by you putting it in this framework of we're actually doing gradual release of responsibility, start with immediate feedback to make sure that students aren't kind of practicing things that are completely uh, on a tangent or incorrect, but then as they get more independent, you can start to move to, to longer cycles of feedback is great. So in short, great summary. I've got some particular favorites in there and yeah, I'm looking forward to that book chapter. Yeah, Thanks. it's bloody good this. It's, I'm annoyed. Well, I'm glad I don't have to do my list after your list because your list's a lot better than mine. So I'm, I'm pleased I got mine out of the way there. It's really good that. Um, so I've got a different favourite to all, actually. I mean, I like them all. I think it's a brilliant framework, this, mate. I think it's brilliant. I love number two, that out loud in their head. I think that's abs absolutely brilliant because what well, my kind of understanding of it anyway is when we're first teaching something, we have to get that. We have to get that data from the kids as to whether it's making sense. So the most out loud that you can do is kind of a choral response to check that all kids are listening. And then you might then transition to cold calling to check for understanding or even mini whiteboards are kind of out loud in a different kind of way. You're getting data from all the kids. But then when you transition to independent practice, that's all going on in their heads and you only kind of see the fruits of that labor a little bit later on. So I really like that. And also just to pick up on what, what Ollie said, Ollie, I don't know if you remember, it might, it might have been the second one of these episodes we did or the third where I started kind of presenting my kind of four steps of a worked example. And just for the benefit of, of listeners here, the first was kind of the I do, which I'd often do silent teacher first and, and checks for listening. But then the next three would essentially be the we do, but kind of three different stages of it. And again, using your framework here, Zach, I think I really like this idea from moving from heavily prompted to unprompted. So my first, I, I do like a, a an I do, like let's say we're teaching the kids to add fractions or something like that. So I model the adding fractions in silence, then I check for listening. And then I'd say, okay, now we're going to do what I call step by step. So I'd put a problem on the board and I'd say, okay, on your mini whiteboards, the only thing I want to see on your mini whiteboards is what common denominator are you going to use to add these fractions? The only thing I want you to write down, write it down, three, two, one, show me. Okay, now the only thing I want you to add to that now is what's the numerator going to be of this first fraction? It's all I want to see. So I'm, I'm doing, I'm getting that data kind of, I'm really heavily prompting them for exactly what I want to see. But then in the next phase of it, I do, I call it a start to finish. So I say, okay, now I'm going to give you another pair of fractions to add but you're going to do it all from start to finish. And then you're going to show me on your mini whiteboard. And then we're going to use Adam Box's tick trick to look through our working and see if we've got all the different steps in place. So it's it's less prompted. And then finally, I'm going to move to what I call variations, where I say, okay, what if I change the denominator of a three to a four? How's that going to impact our answer? Make the change on your mini whiteboard. So far less prompted as well. But again, that's always kind of what I've done, but I've never had that framework as shifting from heavily prompted to unprompted. So yeah, I really, really like it. 
It's good that, Zach. Very good. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, very, very good. It's too good for us all. We won't have him back on again. He's putting us, putting us to shame here. Jeez. I agree. He's making us look bad. <laughs> um, anything else from you all on, on Zach's thing? Or do you want to dive into your uh, your your final one? Yeah, we'll move on. I am definitely keen to dive into Zach's, Zach's uh, more in the chapter. But yeah, I absolutely love it, Zach. Really powerful framework. The The second takeaway for me, I was just thinking about if I wanted to do a different one in, instead prompted by what Zach was should I should I go? Should I just go and do a rando one that I haven't prepared Christ, for? You're going rogue that here, I just this, had? This Or should I share the one that I was planning? What do you reckon? Sleep deprivation's kicking in. Oh, God knows what you're going to do. What's going to come out your mouth here? Who knows? Go gamble. Do the gamble. All right, I'll do the gamble. Okay, so one thing I've been a bit unsure about over time is this idea of self-explanation. So self-explanation is basically when you prompt students to try to connect what you've just taught or a new idea that you're presenting, try to connect it to some sort of prior knowledge. And the reason why I've struggled with this is because to me it seems like, well, why wouldn't you just be explicit to students? You're, you know, in education, Dylan William likes to talk about the opportunity cost. The opportunity of a self-explanation is potentially the teacher just explaining that connection to students, right? And so I've been, even though there's a chapter in um, Cognitive Load Theory and in action on it, and I know you, you you mentioned it in tips for teachers as well, Craig. I've I've always been like, okay, I've, I get self explanation, I get the mechanism, I get the prompts and how, but I'm struggling to identify when it's more effective than teacher explanation. And I was writing my summary of the my interview with Sarah Cottingham recently when she talked about Algebra's meaningful learning. And it was a I really enjoyed that discussion and it was a really deep one about what is learning and what does it take to make learning happen. And and self-explanation was one of the things she talked about. And she talked about self-explanation as basically giving students an opportunity for meaningful learning. Meaningful learning meaning giving students I mean I think I actually think meaningful learning is a bit of a misnomer. It's just kind of like I think accurate learning would be better because all learning is the same. All learning is correcting, connecting new knowledge to old knowledge um, to, to make it stick. Sometimes that not that learning is accurate. And by accurate, I mean the connection made is actually representative of real life. And sometimes it's inaccurate. It's an erroneous connection that's made. So I think all, me- all learning is meaningful, but some learning is accurate and some learning is inaccurate. Anyway, so she talked about self-explanation is giving students an opportunity to accurately connect new knowledge to something in more of the student's personal experience. Like, because the teacher can never know all the prior knowledge that students have. And so every student, every connection that students make may be a unique one. There might be something that happened in their life or something they've seen, something they've experienced that they can make a connection to. That's going to be a really robust and useful and secure connection uh, that they have access to uh, that other students couldn't. So that's the power of self-explanation. So I was thinking about this and I was like, oh, okay, maybe I'm starting to see where self-explanation is useful and where it's not. Perhaps teacher explanation is really useful if you're trying to help students to connect the new concept to something that the teacher has previously explicitly outlined. So it's like, we've been doing a whole chapter on, um, or we've just been learning about the bossy E, Okay, here's a here's another rule. This is another rule that's connected in X Y Z way, and I'm just the on the teacher. Students aren't meant to ex- understand that, so I'm just going to explicitly explain it. 
where I was thinking, and this is just an, I'm just absolutely spitballing here. Like I said, this is off the cuff. So I'm really keen to hear, hear your um, responses, guys, and for you to put me back in my box, ideally. Potentially, self-explanation has a lot of additional power. I think it could be using that first context where it's connecting new new instructed to old instructed content, instructed content. But I think it also holds particular promise for getting students to make connections to their unique prior knowledge. Uh, connections that other students potentially couldn't make and connections that the teacher couldn't anticipate because they don't have a map of all the prior knowledge uh, that students have. So relating to your personal experience, relating it to something they might have seen at a, a different school, relating to something from a different year so the teacher might not be 100% sure what was covered. Uh, or it could also be connecting to something that was in a, like a previous unit where the teacher's not 100% sure that it's actually stuck in students' long-term memories. So they want to see if that connection's made before they kind of step in. So yeah, I felt like that was a, a little bit of an insight that maybe came out. Uh, and I was just keen to test that against you guys. What do you think? Yeah, I have a couple of thoughts. Do you want to dive in first, Zach? Yeah, um, I... It's funny. I remember. I think it was on E Triple R. Rankle, uh, Alexander Rankle was on your podcast, wasn't it? Yeah, I think that was like the first time that I had heard. Uh, <laughs> I had heard like the debate amongst cognitive scientists around self-explanation, where I think you mentioned that that in your correspondences with John Sweller over the book that he he had said. Basically, self-explanation is going to be redundant if you if you already know the information, and it's going to overwhelm if you don't know the information. The window is either extremely narrow or it's non-existent, right? Uh, <laughs> and I think Wrinkle kind of gave a chuckle because he he thought that was he thought he he, th he said respectfully that's I think that's nonsense. Uh, that's all I want to say in that part because I'm really curious what you have to say, Craig. But yeah. Yeah, so I was going to reference the Renkel podcast as well. Well, well, two podcasts. All you know, I don't like like giving you credit here, but the, the podcast with Sarah was fantastic. I absolutely loved that. I've listened to that twice now. I've done it on, on two runs. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. And your Renkel podcast, I quote that all the time. Just with um, in terms of what makes an effective self explanation, that it's got to be kind of transferable, not kind of related to the specific example, and so on and so forth. Um, so just a couple of things on this. So. I'll tell you one common thing I see where teachers try to get kids self-explaining, but it's always a disaster, right? So it's always useful, to, I think, to have a non-example for these kind of things. And that is um, a teacher does, teacher does a worked example, does an I do. And at the end of the I do, the teacher says, okay, copy that worked example down into your books and annotate it. Make it make sense to you. Explain how you get from line one to line two. And the kid, it never, ever, ever works because it's the first time kids have ever seen anything like this. So they're just trying to get to grips with the example itself. So what they end up doing is just passively copying down exactly what's on the board and that's it, right? So when it works a bit better, and I've, I, I, we've probably talked about this as well, I, I'm, I'm getting old these days, I just repeat the same things again and again, is shifting the copying down of the worked example to the end of the lesson. So I'm a big fan now, the teacher does the I do, we don't copy it down at all, we just dive straight into the we do, get the whiteboard down, so on and so forth. But then at the end of the lesson, if you now return to that first example that we did, you can say, okay, copy it down into your books, and now see if you can make those explanations. How do you get from line one to line two? Where might somebody go wrong with this? How does this link back to some topics we've done in the past? So if kids are going to have any chance at all of getting an effective self-explanation, 
it's they've got to have, have experienced a decent amount of that concept. Whereas I think, and even again, all if you look at the um, math by example and algebraic by example stuff that Michael Pershing's a huge fan of, that's all about self-explaining at the initial stage where you're kind of learning a model. And I'm just, I'm not sold that that's the time to do it. I think the time to do it is later on, almost kind of as a kind of final check for understanding. Now, how deep do we understand this? Can we self-explain? So that was the first point I wanted to make. If we're going to self-explain, let's shift when we're going to do it to later on when it's typically done. And the second thing is just from my own experience, when I found kids really get into self-explaining is when they're surprised by something. I think a surprise is almost a precondition of a successful self-explanation. And what I mean by that is, so let's imagine I teach you, you know, whatever, factorizing quadratics or whatever it is, and you're following absolutely everything. I think it's quite hard then for you to kind of explain it because you, you kind of know it yourself, it kind of works and so on and so forth. But if you're surprised by something that happens, maybe you expected something and it doesn't quite turn out that way, then I think, oh, wow. And as soon as you're surprised by something, it's human kind of instinct to try and explain it. Let me try and reconcile what's actually happened with what I thought was going to happen. So I always find surprises, counterintuitive results, are that they tend to lend themselves better to self-explanations than just kind of procedures where it all pans out as you'd expect it to so there, there's my kind of two reflections Matt I don't know if they're any use at all yeah it's really interesting and I I think the main thing I've picked up from that is seeing self-explanations in as an opportunity to check for understand is is powerful and that relates to what I was saying in terms of um they're they're good when the teacher is trying to provide students with an opportunity to connect the new knowledge to something that they're not sure the students have in long-term memory but that may have been covered previously. So by saying, all right, what does this, you know, explain to yourself, what does this relate to? Like which principle, which practice, whatever it might be that we've covered in the past, the teacher's actually essentially checking if students have been able to make that connection and if the prior knowledge is in their long-term memory. So I think that's a, that's a really powerful idea. Did you want to, you look like you wanted to say something to that? No, just nodding. I, th- I think you're right. I think that's a good way of framing it, mate. I like that. And, and then the, the final thing I, I was thinking, is that this might actually be, tell me if I'm wrong, and this is why I was kind of prompted to go off script a little bit and explore this one today. This could be related to like a seventh principle for guidance fading or, or gradual release of responsibility, which be, would be something like go from teacher explanations to self-explanations. Um, I think I think it fits really, really well within that framework and it is moving from like more teacher scaffolded to, to, to student-led. So I just thought that was a, another thing to throw out there. Ollie's now a co-author of your book there, Zach. He's 10% royalty for, for that one. 100%. That was the goal. <laughs> oh, that's excellent. And, you know, yeah, I, it's interesting because y'all teach math too. And I find that a lot of the self-explanation stuff really applies to, to you. You read this text and you needed to kind of make sense of the text. And you so you, you explain the text or instead of just... Instead of instead of rereading the text, you explain what it says. Uh, but when you get into the procedures, you're 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 more sort of saying the procedure. Sorry about that. You're more just sort of repeating the procedure. Maybe uh, you're you're doing a lot of mental work that could be done on on paper. 
I don't know. I I encourage my teachers to use self-explanation, but they there was that Barbary and uh, and and all uh, meta-analysis coming out about math showing that it wasn't particularly effective, even maybe a negative effect on mathematics. And I didn't even know what to make of it. So I haven't heard about that study. I'm googling it right now. <laughs> That's great. That's fantastic. Right. Should I do my final one? Is that all right? Is that all right with everyone? Please, Kate. Right. So first things first, it is a miracle that we've gone 90 minutes without either of you dropping, flipping Daniel Willingham's name into this. I, I don't know how that's happened, having both interviewed him, and obviously I, I haven't. So congratulations, both of you, on that. But I'm going to take your Daniel no, we have, we have We have got a set a sideline chat with him <laughs> uh, in WhatsApp, and Zach and I have both been chatting to him during the discussion, so we didn't feel like it was necessary to mention him. Yeah, I can, I can imagine. That wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me. So anyway, I'm going to take your Dan Willingham, and I'm going to raise you my my new best mate in the world of cognitive psychology, Nick Soderstrom. So I've just, I interviewed him yesterday, and I've just released the episode um, this morning. And it's one of my favorites I've ever done, right? So if listeners aren't aware, Nick Soderstrom essentially is the Bjork's right-hand man. So um, he's done his PhD with uh, Bob and Elizabeth Bjork. He's the co-author of one of my all-time favorite research papers, Learning Versus Performance, an integrative review. He's done all the work on desirable difficulties. So I've been wanting to get him on for ages. But do you remember all when we had Tom Sherrington and Emma Turner? I was sharing that pre-testing paper with you guys. So he wrote the pre-testing paper that I didn't really understand. So I thought I need to get him on. So anyway, chat to him for two hours. And it's, as I said, it's one of my favorites. It's, it's, it's live now. And we go through everything. We go through learning versus performance, but we also go through testing, uh, spacing, interleaving, and pre-testing, and I get him to explain what are the kind of explanatory mechanisms, how can teachers harness it, and so on. So there are two things I wanted to do. So one is just clear up something about pre-testing that I kind of muffled and got wrong last time. And then I want to return to one of Zach's, that number three, this masked versus distributed practice. Okay, so it's a little two for one, but I hope you'll forgive me on this. So first, pre-testing. So... <laughs> I, I fully understand what pre-testing is now, but I cannot believe this is effective. I cannot believe it's effective. So I I, I ran, ran Nick through a few scenarios and he says, yeah, you're right. This is the thing. Okay. So what pre-testing isn't, I'll tell you two things it isn't. So it's not testing for prerequisite knowledge. So it's not, I'm about to teach fra adding fractions. So let's just give you a little test to see if you can do lowest common multiples, simplify fractions. So, so it's not that. It's also not a very common thing where you do a bit of a diagnostic before teaching a unit. So, you know, your kids have been taught something about ratio in the past. So let's ask them a ton of questions on ratio, essentially to see whether in terms of a starting point where we start the new unit. So it's not that either. So it's literally give them a test on something they've never met before. They've no hope in hell of being able to answer it. And then because of two ex two kind of mechanisms that I'll go into in a moment, when the kids are taught that new concept, they seem to understand this and retain it much better than if they weren't given the pretest. And the two mechanisms are firstly, and this is the one that makes a bit of sense to me, kids essentially pay more attention to the new material because they've been made aware that they didn't understand it before. So they remember I was clueless in the pretest. Oh, wow, that's that thing I didn't understand. Let me listen to it. And also, and this is why Nick speculates that the pretest effect is going to be more powerful in older students. And that's because 
he found that in the study, the students then kind of did more work outside of class on the stuff that had come up in the pretest than the students who weren't given the pretest initially. So it seems to kind of almost motivate the kids or stimulate them in, in a little way. So this is the kind of big exciting thing that he's working on now. There's replication studies going on. He wants to do it in different age groups, different kind of subject domains and so on and so forth. So I've made a little point that I'm going to start doing a few little experiments on this. I think you've got to... I'm a bit concerned with the kind of, in the same way I'm concerned about productive failure, that I think you need to have a certain amount of, a certain type of student's going to get the most out of this. Like if you're a kid who has failed for years and years and years in maths, and then you're given this test that you fail on again, I think there's a danger. It just, you just switch off for the whole unit. Whereas if you're a motivated student and you realize that a bit of failure is just a short-term thing and so on and so forth, maybe you get a bit more out of it. And of course, how you frame this to the kids is going to be important as well. But just wanted to kind of, just kind of double back on pre-testing. And if listeners want to know more about that, I chat to it, chat to Nick for ages on it uh, in, in the podcast. So that was point one. But now I want to return to Zach's, right? So I'm with you, Zach, on this, right? So it makes perfect sense to me that before you start mixing things up, you want to do some masked practice. So before you start spacing up, in particular, before you start interleaving, you want to give some mass practice. So if I'm teaching my kids, and let's stick with adding fractions, I'm, I'm boring like that. So let, if I've taught my kids how to add fractions, I want to give them some practice of adding fractions before I then start mixing it up with adding decimals, multiplying fractions, and so on and so forth. That makes perfect sense to me. But I've now spoken to two people whose opinion I pretty much respect. So Robert Bjork and Nick Soderstrom, I've presented both of those people with the same scenario and they've said, no, you want to mix as soon as possible. You want to introduce that desirable difficulty as soon as possible. So I just don't buy it. I just don't buy it. Like it makes perfect sense to me that surely you need a certain level of kind of competence to make the difficulty of interleaving desirable. The only thing I could get Nick to kind of meet me halfway on is he could see it from a confidence perspective that kids would just go into that mixed practice, distributed practice, feeling a bit more confident if they've had a bit of fluency practice, like blocked practice beforehand. But he said in terms of every study he's ever seen, there's no advantage to doing mass practice. Get it mixed up as soon as possible. But again, I don't buy it. But then I can't just say that, right? Because I'm 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 picking out a load of other research findings that other people think are a load of nonsense. So I can't just suddenly say, because I don't agree with this, it's a load of rubbish. So I just wanted to throw it kind of, well, firstly to you, Zach, as well. I, my, my assumption would be you're kind of, well, you are kind of like me, right? You're saying, let's do some mass practice first before we mix it up. But how do you kind of reconcile it? Yeah, you know, and I... I, it's evidence is really important to me, right? So when I hear these papers, I go, um, you know, you take everything with a, a a bit of skepticism. You try to dig into them, and you try not to let sort of zealotry ideology kind of like lead all of your thoughts, right? Um, and because I I really I really think helping students by breaking down the material is really important, and and explicit instruction, explicit teachings like the the methodology to to do that, um. Uh, do you let, maybe let's let, let's start with the mass practice you know bit um i i uh i, I working with students in a, a very small individual lesson 
uh, a very a very tight sort of single uh, isolated event in which you told everybody right we're going to be mixing in problems that uh, you don't know uh, with some that you do know or some that are older right uh, some that you just you just were exposed to and give it a stab right I I can imagine motivating students through that that episode uh, with with a lot of effort or maybe just uh, just by framing it correctly, you know? And I think a lot of times you go into these, <laughs> you go into these research studies. I conducted a research study like this for my PhD, right? You go into these things kind of excited to, to give it a go and try to, you want to, you want to be part of something, right? Imagine yourself, you're a student and you're, this is going to be, this is going to be reported on. I want to take advantage of this opportunity. I wonder sometimes past that, and this is, this, this, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to meet, I'm trying to meet the, these ideas, the real, the research halfway. I wonder past that when we're talking about kids who have a lot of uh, apathy towards learning, who have failed time and time and time again at school, who are years behind, and, and if we create opportunities in school where we're constantly making the material too hard and out of reach for these students, uh, we're we're inducing anxiety in some ways, uh, not 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 improving it by this productive struggle, by this, uh, by by this, you know, hey, uh, you barely have it, you barely, you know, you 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 barely have secured this skill, I and now I want to space it out for you. Where when when I've been teaching with these DI programs lately, it's amazing how much uh how much more successful they are we're talking about 80 90% of their responses are correct as opposed to 40 50% uh the students are telling me like goodness gracious this is so easy and i you know are we doing the dumb math right they'll say are we doing are we in the dumb class right and you and you reframe it you say no you guys are in the smart class right you didn't know this but this is the advanced math group you didn't understand right but they they all of a sudden realize and the uh, uh and they've told me you know it's the biggest compliment when you're intervening uh you know why can't you teach me the math and I think it, it is confidence, and it's just it's and, and and I think with children over a long period of time, you really want to keep them feeling successful as a long term motivator. I mean, that's my that's my take on it. What do you think, Al? Yeah, sticking with the mixed one. Um, I'm curious. So you said you you gave two scenarios to. Soderstrom and Bjork, and they said, no, you want to interleave as early as possible. What were the scenarios? Oh, just, um, no, it was the kind of same scenario, but based around the, the same topic. So I'd just say, add in fractions. Here are, here are kind of two options I could go. One is I could give them 10, 15 minutes of fluency practice, then mix it up. The other is, following the kind of worked example and one kind of we do, let's start mixing things up straight away. And they're like, no, do the mixing. Got to do the mixing. Yeah, interesting. Because I think there's so to think about the which which one to go go with i think it's really helpful to talk about the mechanism by which interleaving is effective mm -hmm. and so for those who aren't familiar with it uh, any listeners the mechanism of interleaving the reason why interleaving is helpful for learning is that it increases a thing called discriminative contrast and discriminative contrast is basically just noticing differences or the comparing and contrasting between the two things, the two concepts that or two or more that students are likely to get confused between. Now, it's it's not really that beneficial to do interleaving of concepts that students aren't going to 
get mixed up between, right? Because there's no discriminative contrast. Well, the, the, the discriminative contrast is inherently large enough that they're not going to get confused anyway. The, the time that it's valuable to do it is when you're doing two things that are similar. And so by switching between them, students go, oh, I see that difference that Sir was pointing out now. Right, so I guess that's the first thing. And also something people often confuse is the idea of space practiced with interleaving. So space practice, the benefit of space practice and space practice can happen without interleaving. The benefit of space practice is that you are addressing the forgetting curve and you are providing people with multiple exposures to content or multiple retrieval opportunities of content over time. And each time they do it, the, the, the forgetting curve flattens. Now that can be done, when I say that could be done um, without interleaving, that's because I could be learning just like one foreign word and I could do space practice of that one foreign word in my own time. I'm spacing it. I'm not interleaving it with anything. The re the reason why they often get confused, I think, is because in a in the classroom environment, if you want to space practice, you naturally end up mixing up multiple topics across a specific lesson because you have a designated amount of time with the students and you need to cover all these concepts because multiple ones are coming back through the spacing protocol. So when we're talking about these things, it's really important that we don't mix up or conflate space practice and interleaving. Um, so that, that's, I guess, a first really important point that I think people people need to be aware of. Um, as for the as for the inter as for the when interleaving comes in thing, I agree. I think it's about finding a balance point um, and thinking about that student success. That being said, uh, you know, and that and that trade off. That being said, if we are truly using interleaving to help students distinguish between similar concepts, I actually think that students are more likely to have success if we introduce the interleaving earlier or if we compare and contrast those examples more explicitly. Um, and so I think that probably in many cases, if the content is well matched to interleaving, will lead to higher, high success. I've kind of, it's been a bit of a roundabout response uh, and a bit of a rant there, Craig, but I'm not sure if, if that adds anything. Yeah, so just a couple of things on that. It's, it's interesting, all right. So, like, the discriminative contrast is definitely a key mechanism in interleaving. But if you read a, a lot of the interleaving research papers, that's the, any kind of mixed practice is defined as interleaving. So a lot of Doug Rower's work is just on kind of you give, give kids an assignment and you either give them, say there's four topics on the assignment that are completely disconnected to each other. You either give them four assignments which are all topic themed or you give them four interleaved assignments and by that he's just meaning kind of mixing up the practice so i think even in the world of research it gets that word gets kind of taken to mean lots of different things and like the discriminative contrast is is one of the explanatory mechanisms of interleaving but also just the fact that kids switch constantly and have to reload kind of memories is is another of the kind of explanatory mechanisms of it but i agree with you and i think i got nicked to this point as well that the most effective interleaving is when you have that discriminative contrast kind of lever turned right up. So just two final things on this, and I'll give either of you a chance to, to, to come back on this. So I pitched in my idea of my SSDD problems, where if listeners aren't familiar, you have four problems who all have a common surface feature, but whose deep structures are different. And for me, that's the most effective type of interleaving you can do, because that's where you really have the discriminative contrast at the forefront because kids have got to say, why is this problem that has a right angled triangle, a Pythagorean theorem question, whereas this problem with a right angled triangle 
is requires me to do half base multiplied by height or whatever it is. Whereas if they didn't have that common feature of that right angle triangle, if the context were completely different and so on, it wouldn't be, kids wouldn't have to think what's the same, what's different and so on and so forth. So, but then here's the final thing. And I mean, you've kind of teed me up for this all. I'll tell you something, he was having no, t- he was having none of this, right? So, you know the type of problem, let's stick with Pythagoras, right? Um, I think it's quite valuable to show students a load of Pythagoras questions with a load of different contexts, but I'm not talking the rubbish ones here where you've got like a ladder leaning up against the wall and you might not even, you don't even need to bother with the context. You just see, oh, there's a right angle triangle, I'll just work out the, the height or whatever. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about ones where you've got a pair of coordinates and you've got to work out the distance between them, or you've got a circle and you've got a bit of information, you've got to work out the length of the radius. All these problems that have got Pythagoras at the heart of it, but it's not immediately obvious. I think there's value in students studying problems whose surface features are different, but whose deep structures are the same, but then the teacher kind of guiding them to the point of saying, well, how did we know that both of these problems are Pythagoras or all four of these problems are Pythagoras? What's the similarities between these? Because the problem with interleaving is you're always focusing on differences and differences are super important in maths. Why is this question different to this? But if students aren't given an opportunity to think about similarities, why is this question from the same area of mathematics as this question? That feels a bit of a a bit of a missed opportunity. We start to miss connections and so on and so forth. But he was was having none of this. He says, no, no, no. That's the only thing I could get him to say was as long as the kids didn't know in advance that it was they were all Pythagoras, he could maybe see a bit of value. But he was all about the switching. Whereas, again, I just think there's value in thinking about similarity as much as there's value in thinking about difference. But, again, I don't know. What's really interesting. Go ahead, go ahead. So, because I think you are kind of switching in that context, right? You are switching switching this question context. You're you're, you're switching the surface. So, um, I mean, I, I guess in that, example if you're providing them multiple examples in the same lesson maybe the maybe you would get less benefit because students are like oh okay i get what sir is doing here he's mm-hmm. helping us see lots of different pythagoras questions so they, they actually not as independently evaluating like mm-hmm. what type of question is this so i can see that actually so i mean maybe that's what nick was getting to yeah, so i think, I think so. o- over an extended period of time exposing students to all these different examples is what's required for them to generalize the, the use of Pythagoras of more broadly, but there is a danger we fall into if we incorporate them all into the same lesson or a short period of instruction, because then students are going to recognize the instructional pattern, make inference from that and not go through the same thought process. So but maybe you still want them not... close together though, right? Because you want them to be able to compare. You don't just, they're not going to make that. If you just do like one Pythagorean context problem on Monday and then another two weeks later and another five weeks later, they're not going to draw the connections between mm. them. So it, again, it still feels valuable to me to have them you know, close to each other. But as I two say, things. yeah. Sorry, two, oh, oh, yeah. sorry, mate. Go for it. Go on. Two brief things. One, maybe they will. Maybe they will uh, generalize across those examples. Because I mean, the way that we would potentially learn in a natural environment is we might see one plant that's edible, um, and then a while, a week later, we might see a similar, a, a, like a plant that's like looks a bit similar, but it's a, like mm-hmm. a slight different variation. And we and we do manage to kind of make those connections across time. So that's that's like I'm not sure they won't, 
it might be less likely. But another thing we could do if we did want to space it out over time is we could we could space those questions out over like Monday, Tuesday or different weeks. And then once students have identified that, oh, this one's Pythagoras, you could bring the original one back yeah. and say, yeah, oh, yes, that well done. Remember this one we did last week. Now think about the similarities, the differences. Then you get the benefit of the distributive contrast, but and you lose the cost of them identifying the pattern. And yeah, that's better. I like that. that. That's good. Oh, that's good. Sorry, Zach. Was there anything you wanted to add, mate, on that? Yeah, like wh- what did he mean? How immediate is immediate, right? When it comes to <laughs> like you know, you, you, when you go to 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 distributed practice or you go to interleaving, I mean, it, it, someone has to. I remember uh, uh, Bjork, uh, Robert Bjork in a presentation, you know, talking about, he was talking about cognitive load theory and he said like, well, yeah, like you, you want them to have something to retrieve, right? They have to have something to retrieve. Otherwise it's not, it's not a desirable difficulty any longer. Um, and in the school day, you already have spacing built in, right? We have an hour for math or an hour for, for reading. Uh, there's immediate spacing every single day for, <laughs> <laughs> for every student uh, just built into the to the school day and then we have these do nows these 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 cumulative reviews where we're putting in material mixing in material i mean how that feels pretty immediate to me i don't know what <laughs> uh, what how more immediate that could be yeah it's interesting i i, I agree and i think probably nick could agree with this as as well i think I think his kind of key point was not enough teach, and I agree with this by the way, not enough teachers in to leave full stop. So uh, if he's emphasizing how important interleaving is, I think most teachers are going to block and practice initially anyway. But if you've got in your mind, all right, I need to get onto the interleaving fairly quickly, perhaps then, you know, you're going to get that more effective practice. I think that's probably the angle he's, he's, he's coming from there. Yeah, that's good. Ollie. Hand up in the area. This Go is a new one, up. new signal. Um, well, I just want to just want to try and be clear. Yeah, uh, Craig. Um, you, you talked about a second mechanism. Okay. Um, you talked about another mechanism, which is mm-hmm. potentially of of the benefits of interleaving, which is be- potentially this kind of reloading of yeah. ideas. So that's mm-hmm. that's an interesting one. I ha- did did Dick talk about that? No, I've just come across it in the um, yeah in the in the reading of it. I think there's 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 three there's discriminative contrast, there's this reloading, and there's attention attenuation, which is kind of very close to the discriminative contrast, kind of noticing. Yeah, mm. basically, you can't coast through on autopilot when you're constantly having to switch. Whereas, mm. you know, if everything's Pythagoras, all right, I don't need to even read this question. It's just the same thing. Yeah, so okay. I think that they're, they're the kind of big three anyway. Cool. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll send a follow-up email because I want to read more about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll, I'll also say, like, that in terms of when to move on, there's just an interesting analogy of when to move on that I think I've been getting a bit of a sense of since like trying to learn poetry recently right so what i found with poetry like well i'll learn in like like lines of two together because often the rhyming scheme means that 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 that's easy to recall and a question is like when you should move on to learn the next couple of lines right it's kind of like a, it's a, it, it, i think the analogy is there because it's like a new new quote unquote concept and i found that it's it's a bit redundant to kind of practice two lines until i can like perfectly reel them off mm-hmm. right because it's just it's it's over rehearsing at the early stage of learning. What I'm much better off doing is, and this harks back to what Zach was saying about they have to have something to be able to retrieve. Do like re- review the two lines till I get it right, like maybe once. Then move on to the next two lines. Do them till I do once, and then try to do all all four lines together. 
uh, do that till I can do it once, add another two lines, maybe do lines um, three, four, five, and six together. So I get a lot more benefit and I can learn a lot quicker if I focus less on perfection of the of each two line segment at a time and think more about getting it to like simply an improved memory point that I can then build upon later. So I think I think that's potentially an analogy here. It's like and student maybe if students know that we're, you know you're not ne- meant to necessarily get it 100% or like be f- fully fully secure. I know that's not the case. All we're trying to do is be closer to that 100% memory point because we're going to build on it again. I'm not I just think that's a helpful analogy that kind of helps to me to understand that point about like move on quickly, but also understand that that might be challenging for some students. It's good that I'll, yeah. And I think that was Nick's point. It was, let's make sure we get to the interleaving perhaps sooner than it's most people's instinct because you don't have to have achieved mastery to interleave. You just need something to base it on. Yeah, I think that's mm. right. I thought that was good. I'll tell you what, this would be a good way to kind of wrap up the main the main pod here, Al. I'm going to set you a little challenge here because if you remember in our bonus pod... Oh, Ollie, you've got someone else to say. Go on. Yeah, we on. didn't talk about pre-testing. We just talk, spoke about interleaving. Oh, right? yeah, I didn't know there whether you wanted to. Yeah. Okay, just sorry, one quick yeah, thing. Go on, go on. One yeah. thing, first of all, thanks for that summary. That was really interesting. I'm really <laughs> looking forward to that that podcast with Nick. I can't wait. And I've got a lot of respect for him as well. Um, but I yeah, haven't, I've never heard him on a podcast, so I'm, I'm, I'm super keen. Um... One of the things you said there was like maybe you need a certain type of students mm-hmm. to really benefit from this, um, which is my, potentially the more motivated ones who mm-hmm. are willing to do the outside of class thing. Um, and you you said you felt uncomfortable with that about that kind of productive failure idea. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I've mentioned this in one of our discussions before, but in my first year of teaching, I was teaching in a super low SES school and I was teaching like basically bottom set maths and it was actually like a vocational program. They weren't doing the standard certificate. They were doing this one that's focused more on practical mm-hmm. things. And it was really hard to get them to listen to me explaining maths to them, right? It was like a large class of all students. There was no end of year test. There was, it was basically no stakes, um, in terms of their achievement and, and so on and so forth. And I found that pretty much the only way I could get them to to listen was to put up the question that I wanted to teach them how to do on the board and be like, all right, here's what mm-hmm. we're looking at today. Have a go, right? And that, they'd be like, oh, yeah, we've seen triangles before, sir. I'd be like, okay, that's great. You've seen triangles before. Have a, have a go. And they'd, they'd try to do it. And they'd be like, oh, I don't know how to do this. I'd be like, oh, okay, oh, you do, do, you want, do you want me to explain it? And they'd be like, oh, yeah, please, sir. I'd be like, oh, okay, sure. And then I'd explain yeah. it and they'd actually listen to me, right? That was the only thing I could. If I just launched into today, we're learning about this, uh, finding the area of a triangle. Uh, this is really interesting because blah, blah, blah. That'd just be like, switch off. Um, so I think there's some sort of, uh, that's, that is a, that is a, a in a sense, some sort of pre-testing effect, I would say, that's in line with some of what you were talking about there with Nick. Um, and I and I found it was a motivational factor for attention with uh, lower achieving students as well. It's, it's interesting that. So again, I, I made the point to Nick that I, I, I thought it would work better with kind of more motivated students. He said he believed the opposite. So his argument was slightly different to yours. He said, if you're a lower attaining student, it's quite nice that the kind of it levels the a pretest levels the playing field because everybody fails it. Everybody, no one has a bloody clue how to do it, right? So you're not bottom of the pack anymore. You're the same as everybody else, and that's quite can be quite empowering for kids. We're all in this together, all at the same level. So, yeah, again, maybe my intuition is just wrong on this. That perhaps it is well, firstly effective, which I didn't believe it was, and perhaps it's potentially more effective with lower achieving students. Yeah, interesting. All right, so. 
here's what I want to do to wrap things up, right? I'll so get yourself woken up for this bit, right? So do you remember on the pod last time in our Patreon special for your Patreon listeners, we talked about our favorite podcast episodes um, and you recommended one from Econ Talk on poetry. So mm-hmm. as promised, I went ahead and listened to that and I was blown away. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. So I bought my Isaac, my four-year-old, a poetry book, best kind of kids poems. And we read one, read one each night. And he's loving it, right? And his memory's amazing. Like kids' memories are just amazing. So he's learned one. Um, and it's the first, the first, I mean, this is the kind of level we're at in our house. Okay, we're not, forget Keats and stuff like that. We're not talking Kipling here. We're talking, it's called um, homework, it's called homework, homework. And it starts like this. It says, homework, homework, I hate you, you stink. I wish I could wash you away down the sink. So that's how it starts. And he recites it. It's about 16 lines and so on and so forth. But Ollie, I heard you say on, it might have been with Sarah or, or another of your podcasts I was listening to, that because you've been learning poetry, you're out for dinner with friends and they got you to kind of recite some and so on and so forth. Would you mind just doing us a little bit now to kind of wrap up this episode? Just give us a couple of lines sure, of mate. verse. I, I love that you call, you're calling me out on this one. I I, I um I can't remember me- mentioning that in the Sarah episode, so I'm glad I did. But yeah, I was out with um it was quite funny. So I, I was out with Josh Goodrich, Sam Sims, and Harry Fletcher Wood, and that day we had uh, delivered a PD session for for teachers on instructional coaching. And at the school, it was quite a quite a fancy school, but they had this plaque commemorating a. Uh, past student who had gone on to become like an outback drover who's someone who kind of drives cattle um through the outback and and then they're like oh what's a what's a drover um and i started to kind of explain it and somehow they like i don't can't even remember how the conversation got to here but they were like got to the point i was like oh yeah i I do i know actually i do know a poem about drovers i think we'd been talking about poetry poetry earlier anyway this one's called clancy of the overflow and it's about by Banjo Patterson, who's one of the great Australian poets. Do you want me to do the whole thing? It takes about four minutes. No, just give us a little, little okay. teaser. Let, let, right. leave, leave him wanting more. Oh, that's the key right, to I'll, this. I'll give, you, I'll give you a few lines. Um, I had written him a letter, which I had, for want of better knowledge, sent to where I met him down the Lachlan years ago. He was shearing when I knew him, so I sent the letter to him, just on spec, addressed as follows. Clancy of the Overflow. And an answer came directed in a writing unexpected, and I think the same was written with a thumbnail dipped in tar. Twas his shearing mate who wrote it, so verbatim I will quote it. Clancy's gone to Queensland Roven and we don't know where he are. There you go, and it goes on. Yeah, it's a brilliant skill tab, that's amazing. All right, okay, so let's bring things to a close for the kind of full pod. We'll record a little bonus for the patrons. So, Zach, I want to hand over to you to kind of wrap things up. What should listeners check out of yours if they want a bit more, Zach? Yeah, well, you can find uh, Progressively Incorrect uh, on all the podcasts. Uh, I think if you love this podcast, you'll like it. It it. I try to kind of be it kind of bring in a lot of the debates around uh, inquiry learning and uh, and discovery learning. So uh, check that out. Uh, also, my website is uh, called educationrickshaw.com. I was living in Sudan for three years teaching fourth grade and uh, created that website uh, and just kind of fell in love with rickshaws because they were everywhere. Uh, you can find me there and on and on Twitter brilliant stuff we'll link to all that in the show notes that's amazing ollie what are listeners going to check out of yours um my weekly email ed threads is a great place to get more 
ramblings from me if you do think that there's anything valuable that I have to say. Um, so if you just um, jump onto ollielevel.com forward slash subscribe, uh, you should be able to find that or in, in Craig's show notes. And the other thing is, uh, I mentioned it today, the certificate in coaching leadership that StepLab runs. Um, I'm launching a this certificate next year in Australia. It's a year-long program specifically designed to support people who are leading instructional coaching in their school. And so if you want to come along to a couple of... Um, you know, four days worth of in-person PD with me plus year-long support. Uh, you can check that out. And it's also a certificate that's run in the UK by the Step Lab team like Josh. Josh is actually flying out to help me help me run it as long as some of the other team members, uh, but they also run in the UK. So if you're in, on either, in either of those kind of areas and you're looking to really upskill in your coaching, you might be interested in that as well. That's brilliant. And final thing for me, um, new, I have two newsletters, tips for teachers every Monday that comes out. But my ED newsletter it comes out every Tuesday. I did a controversial one. I mentioned this last time, all that we spoke. Green pen corrections don't work. It was all kicking off about that one. And then I've got two new ones, one that I've just released and I'm releasing another on Tuesday to kind of piggyback off Rob Coe's famous poor proxies for learning. I've got poor proxies for understanding and poor proxies for listening. And I've put a list of those based on the kind of loads of things that I see in the classroom so you'll find links to all our newsletters podcasts and so on in the show notes but all it remains for me to do for the main part is to thank our fantastic guest zach for a debut on the show that you, you've outshone us there. that was absolutely fantastic thank you so much for your time that was absolutely brilliant and as ever ollie thank you you've managed to get out of bed at the ungodly hour of 7 a.m i don't know how you've managed to do it but um we're all eternally grateful for that and thank you for our lovely loyal listeners take care see you next time